So today I am happy to be joined by Dr. Jason Harley, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery, Faculty of Medicine at McGill University, and a junior scientist at the Research Institute of the McGill University Health Center. They are also the director of the Simulation Affect Innovation Learning and Surgery Lab and an associate member of the Institute for Health Sciences Education and Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology at McGill University. Dr. Harley completed their Social Sciences of Quebec and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Canada Graduate Scholarship-funded PhD in Educational Psychology at McGill University in 2014. They held a funded postdoctoral position in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Montreal from 2014 to 2015 before joining the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Alberta as an assistant professor from 2016 through 2019. In 2018, they won the Outstanding Early Career Researcher Award sponsored by the Technology, Instruction, Cognition, and Learning Special Interest Group of the American Educational Research Association. Today, we'll be discussing Jason's 2019 article in the journal Educational Psychologist entitled Emotion Regulation in Achievement Situations and Integrated Model, which they wrote with Reinhard Peckrin, Jamie Taxer, and James Gross. Jason, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me. So we'd like to start off with you just telling our listeners kind of a brief summary of the kind of main focus of your article. Well, in this article, we reviewed the assumptions of the process model of emotion regulation that was uh, James Gross's, as well as the control value theory of achievement emotions uh, by Reinhard Peckrin. And we started the article off because these two had limited contact before this article. And then we talked about how we came up with and proposed an integrated process model of achievement emotion regulation, as well as proposed some different applications in future directions for research on achievement emotions with a focus on emotion regulation. And so one of the big goals uh, for this you know, model was to leverage and build on some of the insights uh, that these two theories have, but to also provide guidance and some concrete direction for future studies that were interested in developing and implementing emotion regulation strategies in achievement situations specifically. So towards this end, we advanced propositions and examples about the varying uh, effectiveness of the five core families um, of emotion regulation strategies when those can be implemented in different types of achievement situations and with different types of characteristics. We particularly highlighted individual versus social characteristics in settings, as well as whether the evaluative components were high or lower stakes, and whether situations were contextualized by different what were called object foci or time frame perspectives, which I'm sure we'll get to flesh out a little bit later, and also the role of different discrete emotions. So are we dealing with having to regulate anger versus anxiety versus boredom or enjoyment, and how this all impacts our ability and opportunity to use different emotion regulation strategies and how that can play out in different ways. So all in all, our hopes uh, is that this model helps to reveal the complexities and nuances of how emotions can be regulated in achievement situations and shine a light on some of the key affordances and constraints that are associated with the regulation of emotions in these contexts. The last thing I want to note too is that, and we have this in the very end of the article, that our focus here is really on academic achievement, uh, but there's other domains too that this model can be applied to, such as work, sports, and performing arts, and medicine, importantly. And uh, I add that because I'm, of course, now in a faculty of medicine and doing work in a medical education context increasingly. Right. So this is super cool stuff. And so I know that a lot of students I work with very often want to bring things together, want to bring ideas together, or they, they see a gap and they want to fill it. So I think people would be really interested to hear kind of like, how, how did you figure out that, oh, there's 
there's this theory on control value over here, and there's this theory on emotion regulation over here, and gosh, it'd be great to bring them together. How did, how did you get there? What did you do to get to that? That's a great question. What one of the, I guess the starting point for this was me challenging or me being challenged, I guess, to bring together. Um, I was in, in my research was moving towards a focus on emotion regulation, but a focus on emotion regulation in achievement situations and educational contexts. And so, you know, Reinhardt's control value theory is a wonderfully rich theory for providing us with all kinds of a different testable hypothesis and to understand how different aspects of a situation, external, the external elements of a situation and the internal aspects of a situation, our appraisals, for example, influence the generation of different emotions. Gross's model uh, is fantastic for describing how emotions are generated on a general level. As well as different, as well as organizing the large number of different emotion regulation strategies into these five very nice families that are really helpful for conceptualizing and organizing how we can regulate emotions. The challenge was that there was this space between Gross's model and Reinhardt's theory where it, it was kind of tricky to figure out, okay, well, I've got these two beautiful things, but when it comes to looking at and figuring out how to regulate emotions in academic achievement emotions, I need more guidance. One theory provides a lot of rich context in terms of how these emotions come to be, particularly, again, the role of appraisals, control, and value. And the other tells me that there's these, you know, there's at least five different families of emotion regulation. So there's more than one way uh, to go about this. But in terms of what that would look like, how that would play out in different types of achievement situations, because we know in educational research that there's a variety of different contexts that part was was missing. So I was finding myself kind of bringing these theories together, looking for looking at, at for places where they intersected and agreed, finding that there were some places where you know where, where it looked quite complementary, but finding it kind of clunky to even write into uh, you know into articles that we were using two different separate two separate theories that hadn't been properly integrated together or extended. And so I remember approaching Reinhard Peckerin at an ARA conference, and it was like you know, it'd be really great if, you know, we could, you know, or I, I think I asked actually, first of all, whether he was working on something. So I was like, do you have something that will provide a little bit more detail for hypothesis and for theoretical framework sections? And I talked to him a little bit about some of the preliminary thoughts that I had and some of the conceptual work I'd been doing. And he was like, oh, that sounds great. Let's ask James. And then, so I think we emailed James and I think we were like collaborating before I got into the airport. It was just, it moved really quickly. So they were both really supportive and thought it was a good idea. And uh, we partnered also, of course, with Jamie Taxer, who also was really helpful in conceptualizing this integrated process model. And we were off and it was again, a very much a collaborative effort. And it was a pleasure working with all three of them. Mm -hmm. There's so many things I like about that story, right? So I really like how you were delving deeply into different models. And I, I suspect because you had gotten so familiar with them that you were able to see their connections or potential connections. That's that's a really important message for early career scholars, right? And graduate students, like you got to really dive deep to see these connections. But then I, I love I love the idea of just going to a conference and talking to someone and saying, hey, have you thought of this? And then developing a collaboration before you got to the airport, as you said. And again, I just, I think it speaks to the importance of making connections with other scholars and kind of get, putting yourself out there and not being afraid to connect with other scholars because really wonderful things happen like your article. So I really like that story. 
Absolutely. A lot of the time, as you noted, I think that's a great takeaway for early career researchers and students, that a lot of a lot of professors are really approachable people, both Reinhardt Peckeron and James Gross, despite being these huge international experts, are both mm-hmm. very approachable, very constructive, wonderful people. And that's important to remember to not be intimidated. Uh, if you have an idea or have a question, it's you know that's one of the great things about conferences. It's a chance to to meet and talk about ideas or questions with some of the people that you've been reading about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's fantastic. So I'm glad that you shared that. Let's dig into your paper a little bit here and get into the ideas in your model. So achievement emotions, sometimes they help people learn, sometimes they can hinder people, but they are more complex, I think, than many people suspect. Can you talk to us a little bit about the various ways in which we categorize or classify achievement emotions? That's a great question. I think one of the first things that would be helpful to to think about is to maybe first differentiate achievement emotions from some of the other emotions that can take place in academic settings. And so this model is particularly focused on the achievement emotion pieces. Achievement emotions are emotions that arise in situations related to meeting competency-based standards of quality. So this could be something like writing the final exam or engaging in a class debate. It's pretty flexible. But these do and can differ from emotions uh, such as social emotions we can have, where you can be frustrated or angry with a classmate, for example. Those situations can still be tied to achievement, which the model talks about when it comes to collaborative group work, for example. But that can be different than a social emotion. Similarly, we have epistemic emotions, uh, which we know are, once again, another class. And so achievement emotions, though, in and of themselves are complicated to an extent because They can be sorted along some different dimensions. We can think about those from an emotion taxonomy point of view through the circumplex model with emotions either being positively valenced or negatively valenced. That corresponds to whether an emotion is inherently or intrinsically pleasant or unpleasant to experience. So some engagement or enjoyment, for example, is something most of us find pleasant to experience. Anger is an unpleasant emotion, for example. We also have activating and deactivating emotions, which is how how exciting something is, for example. So something that's um, going to produce something that's an anger emotion, for example, is a high activation emotion. Boredom, for example, is a low activation activation emotion. Um, there's a low excitatory response with boredom versus anger. And so that's one way that we can think about these. But even within those different dimensions, we have different types of emotional states that can fall in common quadrants, like anger and anxiety. And depending on you know, whether we're anger, angry or anxious, this is going to have really different implications for how we should go about resolving or regulating those emotions. And that was a piece that we really wanted to address in this emotion regulation model, whereas James's process model of emotion regulation is very domain general and also relatively emotion general. We know that there's different emotions have, for example, different appraisal mechanisms behind them. Reinhardt's control value theory has outlined that we can kind of nearly think about emotions as kind of outputs from different combinations of appraisals of value and control, for example, in addition to whether something is future-oriented or in the past or something that's taking place in the present. So all in all, there's actually quite a few different dimensions that go into thinking about what constitutes an emotion. And all of these different ingredients have implications for our opportunities to regulate emotions, as well as how effective we're going to be when it comes time to regulating them. Hmm. So that that's really helpful. And there was a lot there that I think for someone who maybe hasn't 
thought a lot about achievement emotions or hasn't thought a lot about regulating emotions, that's super helpful. One of the first things you said that I thought was really helpful was that there are academic emotions and there are achievement emotions, and, and both are important and both can happen in academic settings, but they're they're somewhat different. And the valencing and activation nature of achievement emotions is also really important to highlight because I think, again, a, a kind of a layperson understanding of emotions is, well, there's positive emotions and there's negative emotions, but that activating, deactivating piece, I think is really important to also take into account. So in your paper, you talk about some combinations of valence and activation that may be less familiar to people, like positive deactivating emotions like relief and negative activating emotions like anger. Can you talk a little bit about the hypotheses about how those relate to academic performance and achievement? Absolutely. One of the reasons that it's important to look at not just whether things are positive or negative, but the activation dimension, as you mentioned, is because the more granular view point we have on the emotions someone's experiencing, so for, again, diving beyond uh, looking at positive and negative, that gives us a better understanding of what, of what the achievement is going to be associated with that. So for example, the literature has shown that positive activating emotions like enjoyment, pride, which feel good too, as we would expect, these tend to be associated with effective performance in academic settings. On the other hand, we know also that negatively valenced deactivating emotions such as hopelessness and boredom, these are really our like kind of red traffic light emotions. These are the most often associated with negative outcomes. So yeah, I have like a traffic light system thing going on with mm -hmm. this, um, but there's no slides, so I don't get to show it. <laughs> um, the, our yellow light, because there has to be a yellow light if there's a green and a red, are actually our negative activating emotions. And in these cases, this can be, these are emotions like shame and anxiety. Anxiety might be the, a little bit more obvious one. And I think of the two, it's a, a little bit more widely researched one. Here, a little bit of anxiety, for example, can be a good thing. It can motivate us to engage effort and to make sure that we study a little bit harder, prepare a little bit more, et cetera. But we know also that too much anxiety can be a problem. Instead of motivating us to work harder, to put in that extra effort, it can paralyze us instead. So instead of you know, helping us, motivate us to attend to a task, we can again have a restriction, for example. On our attention, we can find ourselves focusing instead of on the moment and on the task, setting good goals, et cetera, engaging in self-regulated learning, our focus can become hijacked and we might end up focusing instead on future worst case scenarios. And so that's not so helpful. So these are examples of why it's really important. And we think in putting this model together helpful to propose hypotheses in the context of different emotions rather than focusing on just positive or negative or exclusively focusing on anxiety. And of course, the academic achievement emotion literature started off with a focus on anxiety. In particular, no surprise, if you're going to study one emotion, anxiety is, is the emotion probably most people will talk about being something they want to have more control over in terms of approaching their academic tasks. But we also know that other emotions are also critical to understand. And with emotion regulation, it's not just about down-regulating emotions. So we do certainly want to bring anxiety, if there is some, to a manageable level. But we also want to foster enjoyment. We want to foster pride. And so those are also really important dimensions of the model is that it's not just emotions don't run one way. We don't want to just crush them. We want to foster the emotions that are going to make people feel good, motivate them, and help them to best use their cognitive resources.
So that's really helpful. Thank you. And I'm glad you highlighted that point. And I'm, I, I wish I, I could assume that all of our listeners knew this, but I don't know that it has fully gotten out into the community yet that emotions are important. Emotions can be good. Emotions are a complement to cognition and are necessary for learning. As you said, I think there was a period of time where emotions were thought to be kind of the antithesis to thinking or good thinking, you know, don't be too emotional, be more rational. And, and now we know that that's not true, that emotions are a critical part of good thinking. And so having these more complicated, but more accurate perspectives upon emotions, like by valence and activation and object focus, we can better capture the ways that emotions play really important roles in learning. So I'm, I'm glad you helped us map that space because it's a little more complicated than many people think, but it's important to understand it. Absolutely. And I think, and it was such a pleasure to work with Reinhard on this model in particular, because his program of research with the control value theory, the academic achievement emotion questionnaire, I think has been so instrumental to mm -hmm. helping people realize those points and make those connections with solid empirical findings. Uh, so absolutely, that's really true. I remember my first conference paper, it was accepted at a conference, I won't mention which one, but I definitely had a reviewer comment, which was like, why do I care about emotions? Mm. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. Several, many years later, uh, it's still a conversation we're having, and I'm really glad that you highlighted that too. Mm -hmm. Oh, reviewer to get in touch with your emotions. <laughs> Jason, can you walk us through when an achievement event occurs or someone thinks about achievement? What would Peckron's control value theory state about the factors that influence the kind of emotion that results? What we know, and one of the things that Reinhardt's control value theory has been so instrumental in showcasing is that appraisals of value and appraisals of control have a strong influence on the types of emotions that will result from a particular task. And this, this was something that fits. This was, I think, one of the primordial building blocks, effectively, to the model where, and so I'll kind of although people can read it, I, I think this might be a good place to jump into the emotion generation piece. So we know that people have emotions by attending to some kind of event that occurs in an academic achievement situation, and we appraise it in relationship to our goals. And then depending on the appraisal mechanisms, and we know that control and value are two crucial ones in academic achievement situations, this generates a particular emotional response. This is a fairly sophisticated process because when we think about, uh, we can have different goals, for example, but just assuming that our goals are all floating on the instrumental side. So we're, we might be focused more on, for example, doing well and not to uh, overly complicating that part. There's a lot of different pieces to unpack when we think about these the, this emotion generation process. The first part is actually starting off with the object focus and the time frame. And this is the object focus refers to what are you paying attention to at this particular point in time? And this is an aspect that I've been unpacking a little bit more in my research over the last few years, beyond asking people just generically how they're feeling, asking them how they're feeling towards different aspects of an environment. How do they feel? So in a lot of the recent work I've been doing, it's been with these mobile apps uh, that are using some lightly augmented reality features such as geolocation. And so we'll ask people things like, 
how did you feel, for example, about you know the content of the app versus how did you feel about the app itself? So technology-directed emotions in this case versus content-directed emotions, often history. And so these are, these are getting at two different things, and that's a helpful starting point. The time frame is also an important part. And so this is dealing with whether or not we're asking someone to reflect on how they're feeling, so a retrospective account of emotions versus how they're feeling right now, which would be concurrent versus prospective, which is, again, a future forward look. So in other words, anticipations. The object foci and time frame can inter- interact with our appraisal dimensions, understandably, where if we're thinking about an emotion that's prospective in nature, so if we're thinking, for example, about a test that's coming up, if we believe, if we have an appraisal that uh, the test is valuable, that's going to be important to generating the emotion. And then it's going to be a question of, are we focusing on whether this is going to be a success or a failure? And where are our appraisals of control? Do we have an expectancy that um, we might fail, that we're not too sure? If there's a failure focus, for example, and kind of a medium appraisal of control, this is going to lend us to a more anxious approach. On the other hand, If we take a similar situation where our focus is on, once again, same time frame, same object focus, same appraisals of control, same appraisal of value, but a focus on success instead, that can, the emotion it could generate could be hope. So by just playing with, well, and usually we don't intentionally play with unless we're engaging actively in an emotion regulation effort, details like this can influence what the emotion we're experiencing is. And so that's an important uh, component of thinking about emotions and thinking about the opportunities for regulating them. So Jason, that was that's really helpful. One of the um, great things about your model is that it brings together some really powerful, but also some kind of complicated theories. And sometimes it can be helpful to have a couple different examples. So can you give us another example of how an emotion might get generated in this achievement situation? Absolutely. So the last example was focusing on an object, a prospective focus. So again, a future-oriented one. So let's move instead to a situation that we're often interested in looking at, which is how people are feeling right now in the moment. And these are especially interesting emotions for those of us who work with trace data. Um, So in other words, kind of in-the-moment assessments, um, which we might talk about a little bit later. So this would be concurrent emotion focused on an activity. And the activity could be, for example, taking a test. It could be studying but it's in the moment. We're not focused on the future in terms of what we believe the outcome of this studying or test will be. We're focused on on the activity of that achievement activity. Lots of achievement in there. (laughs) (laughs) So if, for example, in this case, we appraise that this, let's say we're studying in this case, that we're studying important material, we believe that our ability to master the material is high, we're we're more likely to enjoy learning about that. And so the example that we have in one of the tables is learning about this stuff is pretty cool. It helps me understand what's going on right now in the world. And so like, wouldn't that be lovely if that was our like learners responses, like to like (laughs) learning every single detail ever. Um, That'd be awesome. On the other hand, we could have a situation where instead of valuing what's happening, there's no value. And from a control point of view, it could be high or it could potentially be low. And this is where we land in, in boredom territory, where there's just an absence of value. And so in this case, and this is a bit of a nuance with the appraisals, and I think that's why it's an interesting example. In a case where we have a high appraisal of control, we could have someone say something like, oh, this is too easy. How dull. I mean, I'll do it later. On the other hand, if they have a low appraisal of control, it could be something like, 
whatever, I give up, I don't get it, and I don't care. So again, these different ingredients can really shape the different types of discrete emotions we can experience. And once again, it's important to capture these different emotional experiences because they have different implications for our achievement, as we talked about. And they'll also have different implications for how easy they might be to regulate. Great. So let's let's move to that regulation piece. And again, I think uh, everyday perspective on emotions are you have an emotion and then you have to deal with it. Um, but as you show in your model, bringing in Gross's work, there's actually um, a, a process um, that can be described in multiple ways that you can regulate emotion. So can you talk us through that piece of your work? Absolutely. So Gross proposed five different families under which we can regulate emotions. And these different families of regulation strategies correspond effectively to these four different time points that are related to how we come to experience an emotion or how an emotion is generated. So before we even enter a situation where uh, an emotion could be evoked, we have an opportunity to, to choose a different situation. Another opportunity we have to regulate our emotions is to actually modify the situation that we're in. And so when we're in an academic situation, the context we focused on in particular were studying, test taking, and being in a class. There's things that we can do in that context to try and improve our emotions. So this might be something like engaging in, for example, self-regulated learning strategies, moving seats to get away from someone who might be distracting. There's a few things that we can do. Uh, actions that we that we uh, engage in to change our external situation. So that might be, again, moving seats or our internal situation, which refers to our competency. And that's where self-regulated learning comes in. Those would fall under situation modification in our model. Then, of course, it kind of gets back to that if the tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, you know, is it does it exist? That's probably not what the analogy or story was. But with emotion, it's a little bit of the same thing. If something happens and you don't attend to it, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is when we do attend to something. So for example, you have to receive, for example, your test grade before you can be um, you know, upset about the core grade, et cetera. So the, from an attentional point of view, we can also have an opportunity to change how we're feeling about something by what we're focusing on. And so if we're finding ourselves getting anxious, uh, thinking about the future, that's a great opportunity to reel our attention back and to focus our attention on the present. Similarly, if we find ourselves thinking too much about the past, about something that's happened, we could find ourselves ruminating. This is once again, maybe ruminating over a bad grade. This is once again, an opportunity for us to engage in attentional deployment. That's what this family of strategies is called. And to focus ourselves probably back on the present, or perhaps to thinking about the future with an effort, perhaps to be thinking about opportunities we have to change things. And that's a nice segue in to cognitive change. When we're, impact, when we're making a conscious in, um, attempt to change how we're thinking about an event, that's dealing again with, uh, with cognitive change. From uh, an, an academic achievement point of view, we know that control and value are two really influential appraisal dimensions. So if we want to change how we're feeling about something, either in the present, the past, or the future, changing the level of control that we're interpreting around that event or changing how much value we're attributing to that event can be really helpful things. So value, for example, can be helpful to try and alter if we're finding ourselves really excessively worried about something, then that can be a good time to scale something back. We want to be careful, though, with 
how much uh, scale back we do with value, because if we do too much, then we might end up negatively impacting our motivation. So if we go from being really worried about something and too worried about something, these kind of scenarios that we sometimes find ourselves in, oh, if this doesn't go well, it's the end of the world. That's not helpful. However, nor is it helpful to go from the apocalypse to this doesn't matter at all. So Mm -hmm. you want to find that middle spot. Similarly, appraisals of control are best when they're realistic. So you don't want to, again, lie to yourself about having a Mario star. We can think about it. For those of you who are not familiar with the Mario franchise, this is an (laughs) item you pick up in the game where you're invincible. And there's music. It's very clear that you're invincible. But for us, if we have exaggerated senses of control, we don't have Nintendo music playing along with us to remind us that this is not maybe very realistic. Similarly, appraisals of control that are unrealistic and unhelpfully low, those are also things we might want to call our attention to. And more importantly, if we feel like there's not much we can do, there's concrete things that we can do to try and amend that. Finally, the emotional response part, there's things that we can do to modulate how we're displaying those emotions. This is typically in the general emotion regulation literature been seen as the the less effective emotion regulation strategy, particularly because people typically engage in what's called a suppression. So they'll try to conceal their emotions instead of dealing with them. And so it's much healthier and more effective if you're anxious to try and again, for example, tackle excessive value appraisals than it is to just, you know, pretend everything's fine or Even better, again, also engaging in some situation modification to help alter how you're feeling and how you're appraising a situation. So I really appreciate you walking us through that because I think it really illustrates the power of the combination of Peckron's work and Gross's work and what you've added to both of those models by integrating them. And illustrating that there are all these opportunities for people to better understand how emotions are generated and then how to manage them, not just after they occur, but prospectively and throughout the process. One of the things that um, I think that we wanted to highlight was for situation modification, I think it's especially of interest and value for people in educational psychology, especially those of us who also do work with self-regulated learning, uh, to, to think about that connection between increasing competency. And uh, again, self-regulated learning strategies are an opportunity to increase competency and thinking of this um, as an opportunity to modify, again, your internal situation. And this works um, in the model uh, with this with the reciprocal nature um, of emotions and of emotion regulation. Because if you change, uh, if you make efforts to modify your situation, that stands to uh, improve your expectancies, for example, you know, of success, improve your appraisals of control, and then also to give you better feedback um, as you go through, which is going to improve your emotional experience. Um, so rather than, again, hit, hitting walls and being frustrated by being you know, smart and self-regulated about approaching, you know, studying or test taking, et cetera, that can actually have um, you know, a positive effect in terms of creating future loops of emotions. Because emotions aren't something that, that just happens. Um, and then you stay in an emotional state. Uh, emotions are rapidly changing and dynamic. So the things where we constantly have opportunities to change how we're feeling. And uh, that's why it's really helpful to have as large a tool set as possible. And we have lots of examples in the article so that whether or not uh, someone's a researcher or a teacher, and we have lots of examples for teachers and a little narrative example of a teacher applying some of these different strategies to deal with a student who needs some help externally regulating their emotions to also make this um, accessible and approachable for practitioners. 
That's great. And I'm really glad that you highlighted the cyclical nature of this work, both within any particular achievement uh, situation, but also across situations and across time. That's a really important way that people can regulate that they don't always think about it. Sometimes you can't do a lot about the moment, but you can think about how to improve your likelihood of successfully regulating in the future. So that that's a great point to mention. Talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing now with this model. What kinds of research are you doing that's afforded by this model? What kind of hypotheses or ideas were inspired by your work creating this model? So one of the things that I'm working on right now, and James Gross and Reinhard Peckern are collaborators on this project, and this is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada, is the development of a multimedia narrative set of videos that are going to walk students through this story where a student who's around their age, so we're kind of aiming at an undergraduate student or late high school student demographic. And this person's trying to figure out what's going on with COVID-19. So we're focusing on, there's a health literacy component to this. And this project is is drawing on work I've done in classes I've taught in media literacy at uh, the University of Alberta, and actually before that at McGill. And the important role that emotions play in how we process information and how we learn about things. Because whenever we're reading information, reading a news story, trying to figure something out, trying to figure a social issue out, trying to um, evaluate the credibility of a source, this is very inherently related to learning. We're trying to learn about something. And so what we were interested in doing here is looking at whether or not we can teach students to become better able to recognize their own emotions during particularly emotionally, potentially emotionally intense, or at least emotionally relevant situations or contexts, provide them with some concrete examples of emotion regulation, as well as some illustrations of media literacy skills, and in particular, media literacy questions. So these are things like asking, reminding people to ask, you know, who wrote this? What are the person's credentials? Are there opportunities for conflict of interest? And while I was teaching an undergraduate course on this at the University of Alberta, this was presented in a slide deck, um, and I tried to make it as fun as possible. But with this approach, because this is something we want to make widely available to everyone, we wanted to make it more fun. So we're going to have animations, it's a story, it's following a character through these often serious, but with a comedic side to it, uh, situations uh, where they're going through the grocery store and trying to repair responsibly, dealing with disappointments. And so far, we've, we've nearly finished the script. It's been a lot of fun to write. And it's a hybrid of really academic and fiction coming together. And this was also inspired by a, a book that I co-created uh, with my partner that we published last summer, which was called Fake News and Dinosaurs, The Hunt for Truth Using Media Literacy. And this was, as it sounds, this was a graphic novel about two dinosaurs that are going to school and they find themselves in different echo chambers, but they have to solve this mystery and are partnered together by the school teacher who wants the class to understand and appreciate that uh, and kind of break down some of those echo chambers and bubbles. And this also took a narrative approach or a story-centered approach to teaching. And that's a pedagogical approach that I uh, really appreciate. And there's a lot of uh, great environments out there. Crystal Island is one of them where students are, are using, in some cases, games, but stories is an important part. And it helps to kind of to borrow from uh, Valerie Shute's stealth assessment. I feel like using narrative is kind of a way of stealthily introducing learning objectives, where because you're listening 
to a story. And there are very intentional um, educational you know, lessons and outcomes that are attached to that material. People don't always realize they're learning. And that can also make the material easier to remember because there's something colorful and fun to go along with it. And from an emotional point of view, if you can have someone enjoy something while they're doing it, this is likely to also foster the right kinds of cognitive and motivational processes that we want to be encouraging. So that's something we're working on right now, and we hope to have that done at the end of the summer. We've just hired an artist uh, who's going to create our visual assets for us, and we'll be working on, on the animations and are really excited to see whether or not having people, having students learn about health literacy, media literacy, emotions and emotion regulation helps them to be able to better identify fake news and or low quality news, as well as to better regulate their own emotions while they're learning about this material. Because often information that's low in quality or outright fake or false uses a lot of or exploits emotions quite heavily with you know attention grabbing headlines where you're already activated, upset before you've even started reading the article or watching the video, etc. So we're hoping that by taking to come back, circle back to a point you made earlier, Jeff, a focus that includes both the cognitive and the affective, that we're kind of taking a, a, a twin approach to this. That's such a great example. And one thing I really liked about what you were saying was that your model has a number of different hypotheses that it generates, and it can certainly generate all kinds of basic research ideas, and, and you're pursuing some of those. It also generates some intervention ideas, and, and you're clearly working on that with these texts that students can use and the stealth introduction of those things. Um, but then also, it, I, I really like that you're just you're using the model to create tools for people to be more effective in their lives. So um, I think that's a, a, a wonderful array of implications of your model. So I think that's a, a good indicator that it really is quite generative. So Jason, what are some future directions for research that naturally come from your work? That's a great question, Jeff. Some of the things that would be really helpful, and I think would lend in particular to making easier cases for generalizability across studies, would be for research to be especially attentive to reporting details, such as, you know, for example, if you used a self-report measure, to being really clear on whether or not you were asking someone about the emotions uh, that they experienced in the present. So again, those concurrent, the past, or the future. Similarly, to describe what the object focus was, or whether you were asking them about a number of different targets. So for example, in asking them about anxiety, you were, were you asking them about test scores, uh, teaching methods? Um, was it one thing? Was it a few different things? Because, uh, and these are important because they allow us to get a better understanding of which emotions are easier to regulate and also in which situations. And the situation pieces is also helpful. So understanding whether something, for example, is a usually test taking is fairly simple, but providing more detail in terms of studying environments or classroom environments can also be helpful because emotion regulation strategies can work differently with different emotions. There's been a, a meta-analysis that revealed that, that different strategies will be more or less effective depending on the emotion. But this is also, we would expect, uh, going to be the case with different situations and with emotions that are targeted at different components of an academic environment, as well as emotions that are targeted towards different timeframes. So we hope that uh, this model provides uh, some insight too in terms of how to frame and how to think about where emotions come from and those ingredients and that they can that will lend itself to increasing the descriptive account um, of what uh, emotions look like. And that will really help, I think, meta-analyses to put together a clear picture and to better understand 
again, which emotion regulation strategies work best in which, uh, in which context. That's great. And, and again, I think, you know, one of the ways that you can uh, identify models that are generative and productive and really interesting is that they um, help us to better understand the phenomena in a deeper and often more complex, but more useful way. And so what you've just described um, might explain why we're getting differing results across studies of emotions, or we're getting inconsistent or no results when we look at emotions and other phenomena. Um, it could be that we need to approach them in a more complex and nuanced way, as you described. So that's really helpful. Thank you. Are there any other research projects right now that you're um, particularly excited about that you wanted to share with us? Absolutely. There's a few things going on. One of the other ones uh, that I'm working on, which is also a funded project by the McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity, MI4. And here we're tackling some of the challenges that healthcare professionals are having with increased stress and increased incidence of psychological stress and looking at the role uh, the different coping strategies, including emotion regulation strategies can play in helping them to better deal and adaptively deal with some of these challenges. And so that's also something that uh, um, I'm excited to be working on, uh, excited to be working on with uh, colleagues in clinical psychology, surgeons, physicians, and nurses, and something that uh, this model is certainly contributing to and lending some expertise to. Jason, thank you so much for talking with me today. I encourage our listeners to check out Jason's 2019 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Emotion Regulation in Achievement Situations, an Integrated Model, which they wrote with Reinhard Peckrin, Jamie Taxer, and James Gross. So Jason, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 